Shalom, and welcome to Kehilat Rosh Pina, a dynamic, multicultural, and growing Messianic Jewish congregation located in the heart of Oklahoma City and led by Rabbi Michael Weigand. Our goal is to bring you the message of the Word each week from a Jewish perspective and to exalt the Messiah Yeshua as Lord and Savior overall. We are a loving congregation made up of both Jew and Gentile, now one in the Messiah, with Shabbat morning services at 10.40 a.m. and various studies throughout the week. Please come and join us next time you are in Oklahoma City. We would love to have you. And now, we hope you enjoyed today's message. Fellowship, friendship, family, although I want to uh, forewarn you here today that if you had a chance to read any of the Torah portion this week, you realize that it covers some pretty difficult topics. And I figured today I'd handle a few of them, at least uh, try to um, get our attention through a few of the topics that come up in the Torah portion. For example, it deals a lot with relationships. And some of us know that relationships can be a difficult topic. Uh, in some lives, relationships are a real minefield there. It also deals with tithing and with giving. If you read the parasha, you realize uh, that it connects with that. And then also another topic that comes up within this week's portion, we'll cover a little bit of this here right now, but also in our Shabbaton class on the Torah portion specifically, Another topic has to do with love. And you say, well, what's so difficult about love? Well, it's, it's pretty easy when you're talking about loving someone that is lovable. But it becomes a little more difficult when we're speaking of someone that is not exactly, how do I say it nicely, uh, the most lovable to you there. All that was covered in the Torah portion, principally was covered in the Torah portion. And if you had a chance to read it, you realize that we are in the process of learning about the life of Yaakov, Jacob, the life of Jacob. Jacob is the third of the biblical patriarchs. The first two would be Abraham. The second is Isaac, and the third is Jacob. Hence, we have, which we read in Scripture fairly often, the idea of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we call them the avot or the patriarchs, the patriarchs. How many have heard that term before, the patriarchs, applied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, it's a, it's a legitimate term. They, those were the patriarchs. And in this week's parasha, if you had a chance to read it, uh, I realize even if you didn't have a chance to read it, you're probably quite familiar with the material, and if you've been studying the Bible for any period of time, we learned that Jacob had 12 sons and also one daughter that was named, and her name was, we call her in English, Dinah or Dina there. And as the Bible progresses from the life of Jacob, we realize that Jacob becomes synonymous, or at least the term Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob, or B'nai Yaakov, the sons of Jacob, become synonymous with the idea of Israel in general, which makes sense because also Jacob's name is changed to what? To Israel. So B'nai Yaakov, the sons of Jacob, and B'nai Israel, they're really talking about the same person, the sons of Israel. And Isaiah, in particular, the prophet Isaiah, used terms like that to describe Israel. For example, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, 
And every time I read this passage, I think of a Ted Pierce song, and I wonder why. But it says, Beit Yaakov lechuvin nacha beor Adonai, which says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, how many of you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a Ted Pierce song? Quite a few of you. But this, that passage there in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, refers to Israel as Beit Yaakov, the house of Jacob. And you can follow that through and test that and see that that's true as you read all around that, that passage. And just like Abraham and just like Isaac, Jacob's grandfather was Abraham, his father was Isaac, just like those two, I would say and, and suggest to you today that Jacob, or Yaakov as he called in Hebrew, was quite an intriguing person. And how many agree with that? He's an intriguing character, a character with a capital C, because that's, who, that's what the, the Scripture describes him as. He's an intriguing person there and his life was quite complex you would think even though he's described a little bit later as being a meek and mild or a, a man of the tent but he had a very complex life and i think one of my goals here today is kind of uh, prove that that's true that he had a complex life and we can see that somewhat as we look at his relationships again even as his life was complex, we can peel that back a little bit or pull that forward somewhat to our lives. And I don't know how many of you would describe your life as being complex, but I think if you look at it carefully, it probably is quite complex. The complexities of modern society may be somewhat different than the complexities of the society at the time of Yaakov, but modern life can be quite perplexing and complex. And Jacob experienced some of that. Now, when we talk about relationships, some people absolutely cringe when we talk about it. And others are, oh, yeah, let's really get into this. And I think Jacob had a little bit of both. There were some people, for example, his mother, that he seemed to be very close. It actually says that his mother loved him that Rivka loved him, his mother loved him. And, but then when we start talking about his brother, Esau, you can almost feel it through the text. If you're familiar with what happens with Jacob and Esau, you realize that these two didn't always get along well. Even though they were twins, and even though they were born almost at the exact same time, there wasn't that big a time difference between their births. They were twins, they were born almost at the same time, but even from the womb, there were complexities there. There were issues there. There was, uh, the term would be, there was warfare in the womb between these two. And when his mother, their mother asked, well, Lord, what is this about? She hears from the Lord that you have two peoples in your womb. Now, that's quite a statement. <laughs> I can imagine her saying, yeah, I realize I have two people. They've been fighting like crazy in my womb. There's a kick here and a shove there and an elbow there. And that's how Jacob was born, with adversity with his brother, even from the womb. And we may think, well, I don't have those kind of situations. My relationships are all hunky-dory. They're all solid. But actually, we all have relationships, and sometimes our relationships can get pretty strained. Any of you ever had a strained relationship? <laughs> Most of us have. But let me run through some of the relationships that Scripture tells us Jacob had. 
And just on the basis of relationships, I think we can conclude that his life was quite complex, that he had to interact with various people in various ways, and, and the only uh, common denominator was that he was interaction with each of these people, each of these groups. For example, with his mother, Rivka, with Rebecca. He had a relationship with her. It seemed to be a warm one. He also had a relationship with his father, Yitzhak, Isaac. He had a relationship, if you can call that, with, as I've already mentioned, with Esau, with Esau. There was a relationship there. It wasn't always good, but it was there. He eventually has a relationship with his mother's relative. We call him Laban in English, Laban. But he had a relationship with him. And also, it turns out, if you read the parashah this week, he ends up having a relationship or interaction with, not the most pleasant interaction, I might add, with Laban's sons, who would be his heirs. He eventually has a relationship with his beloved wife, Rachel, Rachel. And she bears two sons eventually to him, if you read the portion, Joseph and Benjamin. She dies giving birth to Benjamin, but she bears two sons to Jacob. And he also had his other wife, <laughs> Leah. And she was the mother, even as uh, Rachel was the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, but listen, Leah bore to Jacob Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and also the daughter Dinah. All those children came through Leah. And if you remember uh, the situation, what happened with, I'll call it Jacob's marriage to Leah, he went into the tent thinking he was marrying Rachel. And surprise, surprise, the next day, <laughs> it wasn't Rachel at all, but he was marrying the firstborn and the oldest daughter, which was Leah. And uh, there's a, a lot to, to say about that. This is not the time that we'll talk about it, perhaps in Shabbaton. But what ends up happening, and you can still witness this to this day, is down in Hebron in Hebron, where they're buried, where the patriarchs are buried, it is actually Leah that's buried alongside of Jacob. And the text tells us why. It's a simple matter, really. Tragic, but simple, because Rachel dies in childbirth outside of Bethlehem. And to this day, outside of Bethlehem, um, there's a place called Ramat Rachel, which is a kibbutz there, but a little bit past that, there is the, the place where Rachel is buried, which is a pilgrimage site, particularly for Orthodox Jews. So already just the, his mother, his father, his twin brother, uh, Laban, his mother's relative, Laban's sons, and then his, his wives, Rachel and Leah, and then all that already, that's complex enough, but that's only just the beginning with this man. He also had relationship, as you text tells us, as the Torah in Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, points out, he had relationship with Bilhah, I'll call her concubine, and she bore him sons, Dan and Naphtali. He also had a relationship with another concubine, the stories uh, presented in the uh, parashah this week. Her name was Zilpah, and she bore him also two sons, Gad and Asher. 
When you put those together, and you, uh, the, the mothers uh, who bore the children, you come up with, ending up with 12 sons. We call them Vene Yaakov, the sons of Jacob. And those 12 sons are what we would call now modern-day sons of Israel, the sons of Israel. Jacob also had ongoing relationships that we wouldn't think about, but were important in his life. For example, he had hired hands, and he also had servants that interacted with his family. And some of you have been employers, some of you have been employees, and you realize that sometimes that kind of relationship isn't always easy. His hired hands, and we use our term that we would say in modern uh, 21st century America, his hired hands, his servants, uh, they seem to like him. We find positive statements there in that direction, but people are people. He also had relationship with all his children that he bore, his 12 sons eventually, and then his daughter Dinah. So he had relationship with them. And then he has relationship because he lives for a fairly long time. He has relationship with his children's children. With, he's a grandpa, to put it that way. How many of you have grandchildren, by the way? <laughs> How many of you have been showing pictures of your grandchildren? I'm just kidding. <laughs> but Jacob had all that going. He, didn't, he wasn't able to use his iPhone to take pictures and show off all his grandkids. But if he did, it would have taken him a long time. With 12 sons and a daughter, I mean, it would take him a long time to go through all the grandkids there. But he had that kind of relationship. So the levels, relationships, that were very complex. They weren't all the same type of people. There were different personalities involved with them. Even between, even between Rachel and Leah, these two sisters, daughters of Laban or Laban, there were differences between them. And there was another type of relationship that Jacob had that maybe was one of the most complex of all. That was the relationship that he had with himself. Do you know that you have a relationship with yourself? How many knew that? You have a relationship with yourself. It's very important. And how we interact with ourselves is especially important because it impacts how we interact with others. And I think we should have a balanced view of ourselves and view ourselves with the correct scriptural viewpoint. For example, in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, it says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, listen to this next statement, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Think soberly about yourself. It's really helpful when you realize what, what kind of person you are. It's helpful in the Lord, obviously. In Romans chapter 13, verse 9, says this. It says, for the commandments, you shall now commit adultery. You shall not murder you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, they are all summed up in this saying, namely, what is it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I don't know what stands out to you. The word love obviously stands out, but also the concept of yourself. 
One implication of this verse, when you think about it, an implication is that if we are unable to have a healthy, Yeshua-centered understanding of God's love for our lives, for us, how will we be able to help our neighbor understand God's love for them when we already have a skewed view of it in our own direction? If we have a skewed view of who God is, and we have a skewed view of who we are in the Lord, then it's very difficult to point someone else where we're already off base as the, the, the beginning point. It's very difficult. It's quite difficult to wrap our relationships, even in our own lives, if you would, to wrap relationships up neatly and then place a pretty little bow on the package. It's difficult to do that. Just think of your own life and the various relationships you have. And some of them, you, you are so excited about this relationship, and others, you're like, cringe. It's difficult to wrap all that in a pretty little packet and put a nice little bow on top of it. And although we are to conduct ourselves with what I would call a simplicity of devotion to Messiah, or what 2 Corinthians earmarks, our lives can get quite complex especially in the area of relationships. Jacob's relationships got messy. When you think about what happened with his brother Esau, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe you would have a better way to describe it. But I just say that got pretty messy, relationship with his brother Esau. And it became challenging for Jacob as he had to interact with Laban and Laban's sons and Padan Aram, a foreign place. And it was very difficult for Jacob, very difficult, I believe, to navigate, to navigate his marriage to Leah that had been precipitated by Laban's, Laban's, Leah's father's chicanery. It's very difficult to navigate that. You can see it, you can feel that in the text as you read about Jacob. His life was not so easy. His relationships at times were very difficult. And that mirrors us sometimes that, you know, we have times in our life that aren't so easy and we have relationships sometimes which aren't so easily put in a little pretty package with a bow on top. But I purposely left out a major relationship that Jacob had. I've left it out to this point. That, true, that proved to be the most instrumental in his life. That was Jacob's personal relationship with the Lord. And friends, let me suggest to you here this Shabbat morning that your personal relationship with the Lord is very instrumental in your life. The more you grow in your relationship with the Lord, the better it will be for you. And frankly, the better it will be for those who interact with you and have relationship with you. If we, don't, we are to have a fruitful, what I might call a healthy, we're to have healthy relationships in life, we must emphasize in our words and in our actions the pivotal place our personal relationship with God has in our life. It's really important for us to identify in our relationship as believers. You might say, well, no, it's better to kind of hang back and not let anybody know that. I don't think so. I think it's better to be upfront about it. Use wisdom, of course, 
But if your gospel is hid, it is hidden from those who are perishing, not from those who believe. Believers recognize other believers. But if your good news, your best eye, your gospel is being hidden to those around you, what impact, what effect are you having on them for Messiah? It's a big question. Scripture offers us a glimpse behind the scenes of all these other people that I've mentioned, a glimpse into this very significant, I would suggest to you, the most important relationship in Jacob's life, which was his interaction with Almighty God, with Adonai. And Scripture gives us some incidents, shows us Jacob's interaction with the Lord. And what happened tells us quite immense it's quite instructive for us. For example, in Sefer Bereshit, the book of Genesis, chapter 25, beginning with verse 33, we realize that Jacob esteemed what Esau didn't esteem. Esau despised the birthright that was due to him. He despised it. That birthright that was due for the firstborn, he was born a little bit before Jacob. In fact, Jacob grabbed hold of his heel. As these twins were being born, Jacob grabs hold of the heel. Esau was born first. He had the right of the firstborn. And in our society today, maybe that's not a big thing, but it really is a big thing biblically. He had the right of the firstborn. And to Esau, he came to a situation in his life. You know the story well. I don't need to repeat it. But he came to a situation in his life where he felt like it was better to feed his belly at that time than to realize that the birthright that belonged to him was of great value. So he valued what some have called a bowl of red lentils. (laughs) or in our terminology, a bowl of beans. (laughs) He considered that more valuable than this sovereign birthright that he had. And he sold it. And Jacob was right there. Jacob esteemed the birthright. Esau didn't. In the scripture, it says, in the Brit Hadashah, it says that Esau despised his birthright. Later on, he also loses the blessing. So he, he gets the B&B treatment, the loss of the birthright and the, the, the secondary blessing. He should have had the first blessing, but he didn't get it. Be careful what you place value upon. Be careful what's important to you in life. Make sure you got, you got a good track on that. Not in the, the sight of this world, because this world will lead us astray. Well, you have a good track on what God esteems and what's important to him. There's a powerful verse in Luke chapter 16, verse 15, that says this. Yeshua said to them, you are those who justify yourselves, where? Before men. You justify yourselves before men. And then there's this statement, but God knows your hearts. Does God still know our hearts today? Yes, he does. You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men, and you fill in the blank. How did Yeshua say this? That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. You know, friends, and not to cast aspersions in any direction, but 
there are all these shows uh, where they give out, what's his name? Oscar. I think that's his name. They give out Mr. Oscar. And the people get up and they cry and they clap and they do all this stuff. They've been noticing that the ratings for that show has been plummeting because of some of the things that have been said by the people receiving the Oscars. And then there's this little star somewhere out in California that's in the pathway on the walk. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've never been there on purpose, by the way. <laughs> been to California many times. In-laws live there. Never there. No interest. I, I, I don't really care about whose star is in the sidewalk, their little gold star. You know what we should be esteeming? Does God see us as faithful? Does God see us as loyal to him? Does God see us as trustworthy? Can he trust us? Are we viewed by God as people that value what he values? Or do we prefer those things which are highly esteemed in the sight of men, but are, and I don't think Yeshua could have been more strong in what he said. He used the term an abomination in God's sight. Now, again, I'm not trying to pick on Hollywood actors and actresses. They have their walk of faith or whatever, fame or whatever it's called and all that stuff. But what kind of awards does God give out? He rewards the faithful. Psalm 145 just told us about that. He rewards the trustworthy. He rewards those who fear him and reverence him. He rewards those who honor him. He rewards those who speak of him before others who are not ashamed of him because we're ashamed of him in this adulterous and sinful generation. What did Yeshua say? He said that he will be ashamed of us when he returns. And later when Jacob fled, he fled from his angry brother Esau, and that's still to be determined if you're following the Parshayot, the Torah portions, is still be to be determined. If you didn't know the story yet, you still don't know what's going to happen with Jacob and Esau. It's unveiled a little later next week. But Jacob fled from his angry brother Esau, and the last thing Esau said was, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to get him. Thankfully, some time passed by, and Jacob and Esau, and some of what I've been talking about here now, they went through a lot in their lives, were made privy of much of what Jacob went through with Leah, with Rachel, with Laban, Laban's sons, and right on down the list, were made privy of that a little less or quite a bit less of what Esau went through. But that's about to happen in the next parasha. They're going to come together. And Jacob with his struggle about his brother Esau, in Genesis 28, it tells us that he had a dream. He had a dream, and then there appears in the Hebrew text a word as hepaxagamanon, uh, as uh, Joseph would tell us. But it appears just one time, and it's the word sulam. Can you say sulam? Sulam. It only appears in this one thing. It's translated as a ladder, although no one really knows what that ladder looked like. Now, we know what a Lowe's ladder looks like or a Home Depot ladder looks like and what the ladder at your house may look like. 
But this word sulan didn't come with a pictograph that describes and showed what it was. But it says that he saw there was this ladder. And in the dream, you could see that the ladder was connected from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. And the malachim, the angels, were ascending and descending on that ladder. And during that dream, speaking about Jacob's relationship with the Lord, God promised to be with Jacob and his descendants. One of God's names, one of our Messiah's name is Emmanuel. God is with us. Aren't you glad that for the abiding presence of the Lord in your life, that he doesn't leave you or forsake you? It's more of a problem, do we leave or forsake him? But he's faithful, even if we are faithless, because he can't deny his own nature. And Jacob's dream with the Sulam, he calls that place Bethel, the house of God, in Genesis 28. But we read this in Genesis 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow at that point. He made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and I love how he valued the presence of God, do you value God's presence in your life? I hope so. It's a, big, it's a different story when he's not involved. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace with well-being, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, Bethel. And of all that you gave, give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. We call that a tithe, a tenth to you. And Jacob here exhibited such great spiritual insight. I mean, he knew that having a relationship with Adonai, first of all, was not just a take, take, take type of situation. He knew that. And he knew, if you look at this carefully and it's followed through in his life, he knew that there, had, there was a give back to God. And we should recognize that too in our own lives, there is a give back to God. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. That this is our reasonable, our spiritual form of worship. And that's the initiation point. That's the give back point where we recognize that we have been redeemed. We've been ransomed from the pit. We've been saved from our sins through the blood of Yeshua. And we present ourselves to the Lord. We recognize that he's our Lord. Jacob had that kind of moment. He'll have another one in next week's portion, by the way. He realized that. He even The language that Jacob used was very interesting. And of all that you give to me, the Hebrew word kol, all, all that you give me, he says, I will return to you one-tenth. We can say this way, Jacob chose, chose to be a tither before we even read about the Ten Commandments. Before Moses was even born, Jacob chose to be a tither, and he was following in his grandfather Abraham's steps. Abraham also chose to be a tither as he tithes to Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, the Kohen Gadol, the high priest of Shalem, of Salem. Did you notice that the principle of tithing predates, it predates the giving of the Ten Commandments? 
I won't ask you for a show of hands, but there's so many people that think, well, tithing comes from the, the, the Ten Commandments and uh, the, the Leviticus and all that. Absolutely not. It's patriarchal. It goes back all the way to the time of Abraham. It follows through from Abraham to Jacob. We're not mentioned, doesn't mention what Isaac did. But it does clearly say, and it's not 11% or 9% or 7%. The Hebrew word means a tenth. Abraham and Jacob, they recognized that tithing pleased God. How did they come to that? I don't know. But I know deep down they knew that a relationship that involves just take, 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 take is not really a good relationship. Think about it in your own life. If someone just takes, 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 takes from you, how do you feel? Maybe used? Bad? Whatever descriptor you want to use. But they seem to realize that these patriarchs, well before Moses was ever born, well before Leviticus was ever written, these patriarchs, they knew about tithing. They knew that it pleased God to be that faithful. They knew that. Well, sadly, later the descendants of Jacob didn't quite remember that lesson. They began to deprive, to steal, to rob, however one wants to say it. They began to rob from God the tithe. They skimmed off the top. They diverted it. They did all kinds of things. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, it's the passage in Malachi chapter 3. And as they did that, they were hurting themselves. They were going away from patriarchal practice and patriarchal understanding of God into this whole other thing where they felt like they were more clever than God. They felt they could handle their finances better than God's plan. Malachi chapter 3 is really a unique passage of Scripture. We spoke about finances as part of our topics a few weeks ago, and I know many people were surprised that I didn't really mention tithing, maybe once. And more, I think it's more important for us to have a giving heart. Don't you think so? If you have a giving heart, then tithing is a, you know, a, a piece of cake, so to say. And I don't want to make anyone hungry by using that description. But Malachi chapter 3, verse 8 says this. It's a divine question. From the prophet Malachi to the people. Really, if you look at chapter 2 of Malachi, it's directly to those who are, think there's something in the kingdom. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes. And offerings. Notice this next verse. And again, these are not my words. These are there for you to check out and study. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me. And notice this next statement. I talked about B'nai Yaakov, the sons of Jacob. The Levites were one of the children. of Levi was one of the children of Jacob. One of the 12 sons of Jacob. For you have robbed me, and then there's this, even this whole nation. National robbery. Then here's the solution. 
And you can see there's a catch word here. Bring all the tithes. It's the exact word that was used in Genesis when Jacob says, from all that I get, I will give you 10%, a tithe. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. Jacob, by the time he leaves Laban, he leaves that area, by the time he's a very wealthy man, he had an understanding that his relationship with God was not just a take, take, take relationship, but it also involved giving. Because Jacob had an active relationship with the Lord. Do you have an active relationship with the Lord? Are you daily, are you daily, how would you say it? Are you daily involved with the Lord in prayer, worship, seeking him? Jacob trusted God. He believed God would keep him and God would keep his word as he had promised. And he looked to God for God's help in the midst of some of his most difficult circumstances. He doesn't turn away from God in his troubles. He turns to God in his troubles. And there's a secret for us. Our relationship with the Lord is critical for us in the 21st century. Our relationship with the Lord, he is our help. He's the one that can help us. He's sovereign. He's greater than any situation. Nothing's too difficult for him. Nothing's impossible for him. But we are called to walk according to his will and not according to our way. Because there's a way that seems right unto a man. There's a way that seems right unto a man. But the end thereof is not life. It doesn't bring you life. It brings the opposite of life, as Proverbs says. We are told in Genesis 25, verse 27, that Jacob was, with all that we've talked about, relationships, all the interaction with people, all the circumstance, he literally was a simple man. Some translations say he was a mild man. He was an Ishoel. He was a, a man of the tents. And his brother was out there out and about the great hunter making his stews and doing all this stuff. And Jacob was a man of the tent. A simple man, and yet his life was quite complex, even on the relational level. Now, in conclusion here this morning, the relationships that we have in our lives, I think, do mirror some of what Jacob had. No, the names are different and the circumstances are different, for sure. They're different. But that same complexity sometimes we have in our life mirrors what Jacob had, even though the circumstances are different. So I want to give you nine points very briefly, nine points to keep in mind about relationships. And I confess I am no expert in this, but you can check these out and consider them. Number one, <laughs> relationships take time to develop. Do you realize Jacob in all his travail as that, he goes through that travail, his relationship with the Lord continues to develop. It doesn't get worse. It continues to increase. We say this way. I know it's kind of an unusual way to express it, but Rome wasn't built in a day. Jerusalem wasn't built in a day. How's that? And neither is a relationship. And point number two, relationships can be very convenient for us 
But also, please be aware that relationships can also be inconvenient for us. For some, that means somebody that you value as a friend suddenly comes knocking at your door with no, no uh, warning. And for others, it means that you get a phone call at a difficult time in their life, and they're looking to you as a friend. And by the way, the tables can turn sometimes, and you're the one knocking on someone's door, and you're the one making a phone call. So relationships can be convenient. We really appreciate good relationships, don't we? But sometimes relationships bring some other aspects to them. I'll just call it inconvenience at times. Number three, relationships, maybe this is one of the most important points. Relationships require ongoing maintenance. No, I know that sounds like a highway thing, maintaining a highway, but relationships require ongoing maintenance. Let's face it. We can compare some relationships to a leaky roof. You know, we, if we have a leaky roof, and when we moved in here, we did have leaky roofs. I remember walking through the hall over by the nursery, and I'm going to confess this. <laughs> I walked down the hall by myself, and you know what I said? I literally shook my head as I saw the water coming through the roof by the nursery, and I said, Oy vey. <laughs> That's what I said. I looked at it, I didn't know what to say, just oy vey. And I looked at that, and thank, thank the Lord that, that that's been resolved pretty much. But you know what we could have done when we moved in this building with its roof leaks? We could have just folded our arms and said, there's no roof leak, there's no roof leak, there's no roof leak. We could have just let it keep le leaking. In fact, we might be swimming in here this Shabbat if we had. It'd be a swimsuit Shabbat. I don't know. But, you know, with a relationship, you got to maintain your relationships. Sometimes you do have to get your hammer and nails out. And I don't mean physically. Please don't think you need to do that to your friend. But you need to maintain, repair sometimes relationship. It takes some times. But if you, if you have a leaky roof and you just let it keep leaking, you're hurting yourself. That roof's going to enjoy every minute of that raid. It's hurting you if you just let your roof leak. I've seen that happen, by the way, where folks have decided to not do anything about their leaky roof. Well, I take that back. They did something about their leaky roof. They put buckets all over the house. <laughs> you know what that does? That means you've got to pick those buckets up and empty them, so you're compounding your work. Friends, be sure that you tend your relationships. They require maintenance sometimes. Husbands and wives, sometimes there needs to be maintenance in your relationship. That may mean just sitting there looking at each other and talking through some things. That may mean being quiet when we're used to talking and letting your spouse speak to you. Letting your spouse express what's on his or her heart and you listening to what your spouse says and you trying to work forward from that point. We need to tend, and sometimes we need to mend our relationships. It's like a farmer tends his or her crops. If you just don't tend them, what happens? I know, because years ago I worked in the cotton fields of Israel. And I always point out to my family when they show a picture of Lod Airport that I used to tend the cotton between the runways at the airport in Tel Aviv. Really. 
And, I, and if you don't remove the weeds from the cotton there, the weeds, I don't guess they have miracle grow for weeds or something, but the weeds just pop up. So we had to hoe those weeds there. So we were watching uh, jets coming in and out. One time I saw the, the uh, was Henry Kissinger's plane land, and I was there row, uh, hoeing the row of the cotton field in the, between the runways as the plane come in, like there. Very special plane, you couldn't miss it. But you know, if you don't tend your relationships, lots of weeds are going to pop up, so be careful. Number four, deception, lies, and untruths hurt relationships. Now, I know sometimes we think we can fudge this and get around it, but it will show up. Deception, lies, untruths. And I remember something, and I had a very important fourth grade teacher. How many of you had an important elementary school teacher? I had a fourth grade teacher that was of great impact to me. I still remember something she said. It's probably old hat to you, but it was new hat to me back then. She said this. It's only five words. She said, honesty is the best policy. How many of you have heard that statement before? Most of us. I had never heard it then. I still remember it now. Honesty is the best policy. Policy meaning that which you continually work through or work out. So deception, lies, untruths, they will hurt your relationships. Husbands and wives learn to come in more truthfulness with one another. And when truth, truth is, is, comes to the forefront, be sure that mercy and grace is connected to it because truth can be a very stark thing. Number five, we should endeavor to use godly traits as building blocks in our relationships. Now, I have known a couple, they're not believers, but I knew a couple that the building block of their relationship was gambling and going to the casino. I've never stepped foot in a casino in my life. But that was their thing. That's what they did. Now, I know this isn't always the case, but they're not together anymore. Their relationship was built on an ungodly thing, going, spending their milk money, their bread money, their house money on gambling with a get-rich-quick scheme that that can be sometimes. So seek to sow godliness in your relationship. And if you sow stuff like distrust into your relationship or anger or keep holding on unforgiveness or harsh words or judgmentalism or jealousy or arrogance or use expletives towards your relationship, you're hurting yourself and you're hurting them. Growth factor will be minimal and if you do stuff like that, if you're holding distrust, anger, unforgiveness, harsh words, etc., please don't expect that your relationship's going to grow into a healthy kingdom of God type relationship when your building blocks are not good. But if you choose to sow some good things into your relationship, you will reap. If you sow some good things into your relationship, such as trust, truth, and peace, respect, and offering forgiveness, and extending grace. I love that concept, extending grace, and trying to live a life of love towards your friend or your spouse or the one you're in relationship. If you sow those kind of things into your relationship, expect that you will have a good increase because it will come. But it may take some time. Remember what James chapter 5 says? James 5 says, verse 7, 
And I know some people don't like these first three words, but I'm not apologizing. They're in the Word of God. And it says, therefore, be, what's that third word? Patient. <laughs> it's like the person who prayed for patience said, I want it right now, Lord. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. And then it mentions it again, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rains. And here, do you notice this is the third time it mentions patient? You think Yaakov was trying to get across the idea of patience? It says in verse 8, you also be patient. <laughs> How many think he was trying to get the idea of patience across? He was. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The strongest link or building block that we can use in a godly relationship, I'm going to suggest to you it is God's love. That's a strong building block. Scripture says so much about true love, genuine love, agapeo love, ahavata Mashiach, the love of the Messiah. It says that love conquers all. It says love covers a multitude of sin. It says love is patient, love is kind, love is enduring, and all those things it says in 1 Corinthians 13. But if we will build our relationship with love as a key factor in what we say and what we do, we will reap from it. We will be able to love one another more fervently from the heart as Scripture desires us. And love will offer this strong bond of connection for us in our relationships. You know, be honest, doesn't it make a difference when you know someone loves you? How many of you say it makes a difference when you know that person loves you? And it makes a difference when you know that person loves you when they're bringing something pretty difficult to you. Can I say the word correction? <laughs> Not everyone likes that word correction because they, you know why they don't like correction? is because they think they're correct all the time. But when you know that person loves you and they're coming to you because they really love you and their, their, their goal is to help you, it makes a big difference. But be forewarned also, au contraire, that bitterness and unforgiveness will darken a relationship. If you're holding that inside, it will darken your relationship. It will darken a marriage relationship. It will darken a relationship even in a synagogue like this. It will darken a relationship in a church. It will dar darken a relationship among friends when bitterness, unforgiveness, and jealousy and stuff like that seeps in. It darkens things. It doesn't bring the light of the Lord. And even when we are in periods where things seem dark, Isaiah had a good word for us. It's Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. He says, who among you fears the Lord? Who, obey, who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? And then it gives this response. Let him, let that person trust in the name of the Lord and let that person rely upon his God. We see that in Jacob. That when push came to shove in some of the darkest moments of his life, you know what he did? He began to rely even more on the Lord. He saw the sulam, the ladder, and other things in his relationship. Number six. It's one scripture from Romans chapter 12, verse 18. 
as much as possible, so much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So much as it depends on you. How many of you know that it does take two? I don't know, is, it, is the, uh, the saying it takes two to tangle? Or does it take two to tango? <laughs> Sounds alike. It's homonymic, but it, they're two different ideas. And in some relationship, you, you, the other person has to get in line, and sometimes they just will not. But so much as it depends on you, as much as possible, Rob Schoel wrote, so much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. But being at peace does not mean compromising God's standards. And should we develop relationships that are, are based on compromised standards of holiness? Is that what we're called to do? I don't think so. Because if we do that, we're actually diminishing kingdom process, not increasing kingdom process. We want to make sure that we uphold the standard of the Lord as best as we can in our relationship. There's much more to say that, but number seven, make sure all your efforts in friendship and relationships are, I'm going to use this term, bathed in prayer and are not just for selfish gain. I think you'll find, and some of you have already found this, that when you pray for someone that you're in friendship with, that it really does help. It's sowing good seed. When you pray for a brother or sister that they've told you they're going through a difficult time, and you pray for them, and you really mean it, that's an important thing. Recently, there was a situation, a health situation, does not at all connected to Rosh Pina, and it's one of the leaders that I'm friends with. And he told me at a recent meeting, he told me that he was going on a trip to Japan. He told me privately. He's going with the son, with his son, to have some father-son time. And the, the father is quite old, and now he's a widower. And I decided, without telling him, I decided that I would take that as a prayer call. And so I prayed for him while he was gone. And I prayed for him while he was gone. And I prayed for him while he was gone. And I kept praying for this guy. Didn't even know how to pray, but I lifted him up. Never told anyone till now. And so I was praying for him. And then when he got back from this trip, as soon as he got to his house, he collapsed. He's now recovering from some major issues in California. He collapsed. And then I remembered that I had been praying for him all this time. And it just opened up the, the, the mystery, the lesson I know I'm talking about, open up this mysterious side of God. And if you're not willing to pray for your friend, your spouse, maybe you're thwarting some really good things. I don't know what effect my prayers had. They were secret before the Lord for him that he'd be successful. But I do know that he's still alive. Thank God for that. And lastly, number nine, Proverbs 18, verse 24 states this. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. <laughs> There's enough to say with that, isn't there? There's folks that say, well, people aren't very friendly. You almost want to say, uh, uh, hold on a second, but how friendly are you? I've had people say, well, no one talked to me. Well, how many people did you talk to? 
A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I don't know how you interpret that, but I love to think of Yeshua in that role, that he's the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You have that friend. That's Yeshua the Messiah. We're going to commemorate what he did for us here today in just a moment. He laid down his life for you. What a friend. You know, that there's this beautiful hymn. Uh, I don't know all the words, but I remember it goes like this, and some of you will be singing it from here on out the rest of this day. But it says, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. How many of you know that one? Yeah. You know, that's true. He's a friend. He sticks closer than a brother. He's your friend. Are you friendly with him? Are you about his business? Do you want to serve him and please him? He did it. These elements show us that he was faithful to the very end. He was faithful. He paid the price for you. He paid the price for us and our sins, and that was a heavy price. And what really gets me, and I have never grown tired of this all these years, what gets me about this? See, he didn't have to do it. He did it willingly. And he was totally innocent. I was guilty. You were guilty. But he did it anyway. Hereby perceive we the love of God, that he laid down his life for us. And as First John continues, we ought to lay down our life for our brethren. Will you pray with me as we prepare for the Lord's Supper? Father, we praise you this day for your goodness and your mercy, your kindness, your truth, for your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your love that doesn't fail. Thank you for the relationships you've brought into our lives. Thank you for how you prosper us so that we might sow into your kingdom and be proven faithful before your eyes. Lord, as we commemorate today and we remember your holy son, Yeshua, our Messiah, I ask, Lord, that this would be a meaningful thing for our lives, that in some way the trajectory of our lives from this Shabbat forward would be drawn closer to you in this darkened age we live in. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our cries. Thank you for that while we were yet sinners, that you sent your son to die for us. Thank you, O Lord that in your great love, you did not cast us away, but you beckoned us to come. You called us to yourself that we might have a vital, living, eternal relationship with you. And you are good. Thank you, Lord. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to the Shabbat message from Rosh Pinah Messianic Jewish Congregation in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. We would love to have you visit us. Our weekly services begin at 10.40 a.m. each Shabbat, and we are located at 2600 Northwest 55th Place, north of Northwest Expressway at the corner of Northland Avenue and Northwest 55th Place. We meet each Shabbat for wonderful praise and worship with dance, liturgy, teaching, food, fellowship, excellent children's programs, and Bible studies on Tuesday nights. For more information, please visit our website, www.roshpinah.org That's R-O-S-H-P-I-N-A-H dot O-R-G You can also reach us by phone at 
1-800-226-1967 or email us at info at roshpinah.org. Thank you for spending time in the Word with us today. Shabbat Shalom and blessings in Messiah Yeshua.